You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. As many of you know, yesterday was Earth Day. And uh, I was thinking this week, hey, what a great opportunity, even though today's not technically Earth Day. Every day is Earth Day, right? (laughs) In a way, right? This is Earth. Uh, So I was thinking, let's talk about ecology this Sunday. Not really a series, just one talk, I guess. But we never really talk about what is a Christian approach to ecology here? What is a, a Christian approach to environmentalism, if you will? Or more, yeah, more specifically, a, a Christian ecology. This is something we often don't talk about. There's a few scriptures in, uh, in, in scripture. There's a few scriptures in scripture. That's a nice way to put it. There's a few different scriptures Christians traditionally turn to when they want to talk about ecology and environmentalism. And one of those is, of course, the creation narratives from Genesis chapter one and two, where God tells Adam and Eve to be good stewards of the earth, to cultivate it, to manage it, to be co-creators with God and caring for creation. Christians and Jews alike have used that story to essentially say, hey, creation care, environmental care, This is our God-given mandate as human beings. Another direction Christians go is by looking at the incarnation, the enfleshment of God in human form, meaning, of course, Jesus of Nazareth, who was a human being, a mammal, a homo sapien, to be exact, a primate, an ape, just like us. This, of course, raises the question, what does it mean that God became a primate? (laughs) We often don't think of it in these terms. What does it mean that God became an ape? They didn't know that back then. This is pre-Darwin, right? But we're apes. We know this. We're primates. What does it mean that the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, what does it mean that the Son was an ape? That, That God became where God is. A primate. What does theology have to do with zoology? Well, from a Christian point of view, with regards to the incarnation, a lot, apparently. One way of reading this is that the natural world is divine. Not just our flesh, not just the flesh of mammals and homo sapiens and primates and vertebrates, but all flesh All of creation is endowed with the Spirit of God. In fact, one may infer that that's part of the meaning of the Lord's Supper. What does it mean that God is somehow present in the wine and the bread, which is Christian tradition? Catholics take that very literally, transubstantiation. God actually, the body of Christ is actually present, actually becomes present, physically, literally present, they believe, in a traditional Catholic setting, in the Eucharist, at Mass, when the priest holds up the Eucharist and says the words, becomes the body of Christ. Literally the body. What does it mean, though, in even 
more symbolic ways that God is somehow present in this form, that God is somehow present in grape juice, in the grapes, in the wheat that becomes the bread, that of course was first dirt and sunlight and water. What does it mean that God in his spirit or her spirit is somehow present in the entire created order? That's part of the meaning of the Lord's Supper. God is present in bread and wine. God is present in us in the form of human bodies apes and primates, all flesh. I have a friend in the ministry that says the meaning of the incarnation is that God is present in creation itself. Creation itself is incarnation, not just Jesus's body, but all of creation is the incarnation of God's spirit. This is even close to an indigenous understanding of the divine. There is no distinction between the natural world and the world of the spirit. All of the natural world is infused, animated with the divine. That's cool. I like that message. That's kind of a radical ecological understanding of the incarnation. But I want to take things a different direction today. I want to talk about a Christian approach to ecology on this Earth Day weekend. I want to talk about a Christian approach to ecology as a critique of empire. I believe the gospel, a.k.a. Jesus' good news, his mission and message. The gospel was about, was a critique of the unjust and oppressive systems and institutions of this world that especially oppress and exploit the poor and the powerless and the vulnerable. Jesus' gospel, his good news was a critique of those systems and those institutions be they secular or religious, they're often both. And these institutions, these principalities and powers, these rulers and authorities are under the judgment of God. That's at the heart of the gospel, that message. And, and because this is the case, because this is at the heart of the gospel, I think the gospel must also be a judgment or a critique against the ecological and environmental injustices we see in our world as well, that the rulers and authorities perpetuate. And today that means the corporations and the governments and the economic systems that rule our world and how they have created and continue to perpetuate the current climate crisis and ecological crisis we are all too aware of, increasingly so. Don't get me wrong, we, we should absolutely take seriously our individual role in damaging the environment, but we should do so without missing the bigger picture that it is really capitalism and corporations, namely the oil and gas industry, the so-called rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers to invoke some biblical rhetoric, that are most responsible and to blame this critique of empire and this critique of power that we find in the gospels and really throughout the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament, is how I think we might best approach this topic of ecological justice today. Climate justice writer Mary Anais Hegler puts it this way. She says, the more we focus on individual action and neglect systemic change, the more we're just sweeping, sweeping leaves on a windy day. 
So while personal actions can be meaningful starting points, like recycling, they also can be dangerous stopping points. We need to broaden our definition of personal action beyond what we buy or use. Start by changing your light bulb, but don't stop there. Taking part in a climate strike or showing up to a rally is a personal action. Organizing neighbors to sue a power plant that's poisoning the neighborhood is a personal action. Voting is a personal action. When choosing your candidate, investigate their environmental policies. If they're not strong enough, demand better. Once that person is in office, hold them accountable. And if that doesn't work, run for office yourself. That's another personal action. Take your personal action and magnify it into something bigger than just what kind of bags you choose to carry your gro groceries in. We're told climate change could have been fixed if we had all just ordered less takeout, used fewer plastic bags, turned off some, some lights, planted a few trees, or driven an electric car. We're, we're led to believe if those adjustments can't do the trick, what's the point? The belief is that this enormous existential problem could have been fixed if all of us had just tweaked some of our consumer habits. This idea is not only preposterous, it's dangerous. It turns environmentalism into an individual choice defined as a sin or a virtue, convicting those who don't or can't uphold these ethics. And I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about the climate crisis and environmental activism. It really should be understood as a critique of power, a critique of empire, a critique of the rulers and authorities and the principalities and the powers to again invoke some biblical rhetoric. This idea that we are as individuals or that humanity in general is to blame for the climate, for the climate crisis is not only incorrect, but has led to this pernicious idea today called eco-fascism. Maybe you've heard that term before, eco-fascism. Eco-fascism is this idea that humanity is a virus or a cancer on the earth that must be destroyed in order for the earth to be healthy. You hear this language often in political statements today, and you see it online in cartoons and memes. I think that that language, humanity is a virus, actually started with a uh, comedian uh, from the 1980s named Bill Hicks. Maybe some of you are familiar with him. He, uh, as part of his stand-up routine in the 1980s, he's, he's dead now, but as part of his stand-up routine, he talked about, or his, his quote is, humanity is a virus with shoes. <laughs> that was his joke. Humanity is a virus with shoes. And this language and this imagery was then picked up by pop culture and parts of the environmental movement. You find it everywhere today, even in films. I'm reminded of um, the Matrix, the first movie, when Agent Smith is interrogating Morpheus, right? And Agent Smith tells him, there's two organisms on this planet that consume all the resources they can in any given location and then move on to the next one. And eventually, you know, they, they kill their host. Those two organisms are, he says, viruses and humanity. This is eco-fascism. It's essentially an ideology that celebrates the extinction or the mass death of our species for the sake of environmental health. Don't get me wrong. 
Don't get me wrong. We need to admit that the human impact on the environment in the modern world has been significantly destructive. But in the words of my friend and colleague and ministry, Jordan Miller, the bulk of this destruction lies with multinational corporations who have profited from the exploitative extraction of natural resources and rampant disregard for those communities most directly affected by climate change. Simply put, it is not humanity as such, which is ecologically destructive, but industrial and consumer capitalism. Mass human death, whether from genocide, a pandemic, or climate change, is not something that should be celebrated or called upon. Humanity is just as much a part of global ecology as trees and rivers and oceans and all the host of flora and fauna that we see in the world. To celebrate genocide, to call humanity a virus, is socially, politically, and even theologically irresponsible. To put it in theological terms, eco-fascism eco is like Calvinism. It's like Calvinism's concept of original sin. In other words, this idea that humanity is a virus to be eliminated is like Calvinism's concept of total depravity. This idea that we as human beings, we are born totally depraved, totally sinful, worthy of death and eternal torment in hell. Or to put it in eco-fascist terms, we are all guilty of eco-sin. We are all guilty of green sins and therefore worthy of extinction, or at least a sizable reduction in our global population through pandemic, famine, disease, etc. Perhaps the best way out of that thinking, that eco-fascist thinking, is to understand that someone else is benefiting from us hating ourselves. And they're the ones disproportionately responsible for causing the harm in the first place. I'm talking, of course, about massive corporations, namely the oil and gas industry, the so-called rulers and authorities, the principalities and the powers. And I want to finish today my talk and open it up for a dialogue by returning to Mary Hagler's words about what we can do. Yes, we can recycle change our light bulbs, change our consumer habits, but that's only a starting point. It cannot be a stopping point. In the grand scheme of things, us changing our light bulbs and doing some recycling won't change much. We need to also take part in things like climate strikes, raise awareness of the bigger issues within our circles of influence, vote for candidates with good environmental platforms, things like that, because this issue is ultimately about systemic change. All right, there's my, there's my talk this morning. <laughs> and uh, I want to open it up as we always do for questions, comments. I'd love to hear kind of your perspective on, you know, the responsible or Christian ecological approach, or how these ideas might intersect with spirituality for you. But yeah, anybody this morning, any questions or comments? Eco-fascism, we can talk about that. Yeah, Louise. 
Uh, yeah, I'm just going to be completely transparent and honest, but it's very difficult with, you know, your busy life and everything to add this to the thing. And I know it's important, obviously, like this is our earth and we have to take care of it and we need to step up and we need to protest and we need to be activists. But sometimes it can be difficult to, at least for me, to find those outlets to kind of stand up or to do something actionable, you know, with, with such a busy life. And, and I just love to hear other people's perspective or if I'm the only one feeling this way, but it's just, you know, when you're just trying to barely survive and then you have all these other things like, well, we got to worry about mother earth too. It's like, well, you're right. But I mean, I'm just trying to get through the week, you know? And so it's finding that balance between, you know, myself and also my responsibility as a human to earth can be difficult. And so I just wanted to say that out loud because it's, that's a truth that I have, you know? So that's one that I'm working on. Yeah, really good point. And I always want to invite others if they want to respond to what Louise said, please, please do so. What I hear you say, there's, I feel the sentiment, the sense of hopelessness in that. And that's legit. No, it's legit. Honestly, like, what can we honestly do to make a difference in the climate crisis? Like you and me as individuals, is it just recycling more buying electric car? I mean, according to the experts and the, the folks actually, the climate activists, I mean, the, they're really honest and been like, honestly, at this point, there's not much, the sense of hopelessness is, is real because the change has to happen on a level that we just cannot have access to. How are we gonna change what mobile is doing? Or, you know, I'm trying to think of some of the massive oil and gas industry, you names. what are we gonna do about that? You know what I mean? And we're part of this capitalist, we're caught up in this capitalistic system where I gotta put gas in the car tomorrow in order to get my kids to school, right? Or even like, you know, the whole like electric car movement, you're like, yeah, okay, that's good. but were those batteries going to end up when that car goes, <laughs> you know, and it's like, there's no escape. So what I'm just, I just want to lament with you, <laughs> Louise, I don't have an answer. I'm just saying, yeah, the feeling of hopelessness is not, it's, it's, it's not illogical. You're right. And that, that to, to lament that, um, I don't know, I guess is the answer. I don't know. And maybe that's part of the point here this morning. Let's just be honest with each other and lament a little bit and be like, look at the current situation. And yeah, it's kind of hopeless, but let's be honest where the blame lies and not be like, you know, and, and not, not, I guess, give ourselves a guilt trip. Be like, it's your fault that we got here. You know, Louise or Diana or whoever, you know, let's, let's put the blame where it lies. We're talking about enormous systemic problems here that you and I, you know, don't really have any power over. And it's, you know, individually, but maybe collectively, you know, if we, I don't know. I'm just trying to give us some hope and collective action while admitting that it's hopeless. You know what I mean? I don't know. All right. Anybody else want to speak to that? It's a really, yeah, Rodney. See if I can articulate what I'm thinking. But uh, to answer Louise's question, you're, no, you're not alone. Um, thank you for saying that. Because, yeah, I was kind of feeling the same way. It's like I do my little part, recycle water bottles, whatever put cans in the recycling bin when I can. But in the grand scheme of things, there's part of me that feels like, like you could do whatever you want to prolong your life, to live healthy, work out, eat right, whatever, but you're gonna die at some point. So part of me feels like, well, the earth, sure, it's been here for a really long time. So part of me is like, well, what's, whatever's gonna happen with it, it's gonna happen with it. Maybe there's a 
point at which the earth is going to be destroyed and it's supposed to. So, you know, you do your part to prolong your life or prolong the earth's life, but who's to say it won't get hit by an asteroid tomorrow and I'll be gone. So, yeah, it, hopeless, sure, cop out, sure, but it's our reality, you know, just like our lives could end at any point. So it's like you do what you can and put the rest in God's hands, you know? Yeah, uh, Emily. Just completely forgot what I was going to say as you handed me this microphone. Um, I think it was something about like the belief of, um, I'll go to my first point. Um, the Sorry, you keep coming. Um, like it's the evils that, of the world that we know we can't sort of like bring down. Oh, this is what I was going to say. Boom. Um, so realizing that there's no all-powerful God and then realizing sort of what that means for you, not only in your faith, but in like your everyday life and how you feel about certain situations and illness and whatever, you know? Um, it's almost the same as like, since we can't go up against these mobile, these oil people, the people in other countries who are, you know, really controlling things, it's like, you kind of have to just go, well, that's just the way that it is. And you have to figure out what in your, what can you feel good about in your daily life to make you feel like you're making a difference? Because, I mean, I struggle with this. Like I just threw away a whole candy that I was telling Max earlier because it has gelatin in it. And I was like, oh my God, no, I can't eat this because we only eat ethically sourced meats which is also, I feel embarrassed to even say every time we got there, like, oh, do you have any dietary restrictions? And I'm like, I mean, I'm kind of uppity because I live here and I know stuff, but I mean, I feel like it shouldn't be uppity to care about the ethical treatment and sustainability of animals and, you know, that they shouldn't die in a crappy way because we need hamburgers. Like, you know, so it's like, you have to figure out what is good for you in your daily life, because yes, the earth is going to blow up or get hit by something or we're going to be killed like those people who they found that were like you know in the ice age who knows i don't know but how can we settle with ourselves every day that we are actually doing something you know it's because then it is overwhelming because then you're like well i got a job i got I have a marriage i have children i have you know what i mean everything's too hard anyway then you got to add this and then you're like wow now i got to help a bunch of people I don't even know either. It's like, <laughs> but what about me? You know, self-care isn't a real big emphasis in this society because even though it's put your face mask on first before you put your somebody else's on, you know, we don't really do that. So then we end up running ourselves ragged, trying to do all the things. And then we end up screwing things up anyway. It's a win, it's a lose-lose situation. I'll end on that. Yeah, Anna. I'm just trying to sit here and brainstorm like what as individuals we can do to threaten BP and like threaten because what they're saying, the activists, the people at the forefront, it's a systemic thing. And as we've all said, like what individually can we do? And like, can we all, I don't know, mass transit, but like thinking about how it's very capitalist here, it's just nothing is communal here. And like, electing leaders, for example, that are going to do city planning where we don't have to drive 
30 minutes to whatever. I know there's like, I don't know if it's called the 15 minute city or something like just city planning where we're not that dependent on oil or like our individual cars to take us places. So besides individual action and voting, I don't know, I think just more people, more and more people are awakened to climate change now and climate care. So at least that's hopeful. And I mean, with the more knowledge, I, yeah, I'm kind of at a loss too of how to collectively threaten the biggest, those multinational companies. So yeah, besides voting and yeah, our little own parts. Yeah, no, it's absolutely overwhelming and it can feel um, pointless, but it's in a way, I think it's not. I was just even like thinking um, there's, Emily and I are watching this uh, series right now, a docu-series about Dubai Airport. And I know it's, it sounds really random to point out, but I just, you made me think about it. Um, in the in the documentary episode we watched yesterday, they were stripping the paint off of this uh, Emirates 737-77, I don't know, just a big plane. And they were used, the stripper they were using, the chemical they were using to strip the paint off was a more environmentally friendly one than the ones they were using previously because people in positions of power had decided we can we, we, we should change to a more environmentally friendly stripper. And there's tons of, what I'm saying is there are tons of little examples of that throughout our society today where little, you know, even people in for various circles of influence can make decisions. Yeah, okay, it's a small thing, but if collectively we're all making little decisions like that, it becomes a big thing. Does that make sense? Like here at the church, actually, uh, we're going <laughs> to... There's there's a there's a program here in Glendale whereby for free they're going to come in and optimize this building with LED lights and cut our energy usage down significantly um, in the next few weeks. Um, there's just little things that everybody can do. I feel like to participate in that. And if we're all doing it together, is it meaningless? No, I don't think it is meaningless. But the individual little action of choosing to like optimize your building for energy usage or choosing a better chemical to strip your plane sounds very small, but if we're all doing stuff like that together, it can make a difference. Um, and again, with like activism, you know, for showing up, you know, for uh, protests, I think that's, that's a big deal, but, um, or can be at least, but Rodney, I wanted to kind of go back to what you were saying, because I, it struck me as like really Im important. I think light, you're, you're absolutely right to put this in the larger context of like our own death and even like the earth's death, earth's death in a sense, because let's let's admit that no matter what we do, we're all faced with you know um, our own mortality, and yet and 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 the questions of, of meaning persist. And we think about our children's lives and whatnot. Of, I feel like you know, perhaps one of the most important things we do in life is I'm trying to put this to words right, and I'm putting I'm going to put it slop in a sloppy way. But I guess my point is, it's kind of like. Even if life is without meaning, we get to create meaning. Even if even if death is absolutely uh, you know uh, inevitable, and you know who knows what comes next, and perhaps nothing. Let's be honest; we don't know, right? Perhaps nothing, and perhaps life is utterly meaningless. But we have an incredible opportunity in the face of that uncertainty. We have an incredible opportunity, and that opportunity is to affirm life anyway as a gesture of pure love just pure love, 
Not with, in, in the face of total uncertainty and unknowing, we have a great opportunity to say yes to life anyway. And what an act of grace and love that is. If we knew that it had meaning, if meaning was given to us from a you know, great being on high, and we knew for certain right, that someone was in control and defining meaning and giving us the good life and promising us heaven beyond, if we knew all that for sure, we wouldn't have this incredible opportunity to say yes to life and to love life and to, and to do good for the sake of good itself. We have an incredible opportunity because we were faced with so much uncertainty. And that opportunity is to love in its depths and to love for the sake of love and to, to do good for the sake of goodness. That to me is like the kingdom of God, right? You don't know. No expectation of a return or a payoff. You have no guarantee that what you're going to do is going to pay off. But you do it anyway because it's love and because it's good, damn it. And that's how I want to live. I don't know about you. Dorian, I see that hand. I just want to make sure that, does that make sense? We've been given a great opportunity. And to me, this is a picture of the kingdom of God, right? This topsy-turvy, upside-down kingdom of God Jesus describes. Right, where you, you leave your 99 sheep to go look for the one, which sounds illogical, but this is this is what love looks like, right? You pay the, the employees only work one hour, a full day's wage. It doesn't make sense on the surface. It looks ridiculous, but you, but it's love, it's grace, good good for the sake of good in the face of life's uncertainty. All right, Torian. And I'm applying that to environmentalism. You recycle as a gesture of saying, because damn it, the earth is worth it. All right. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, um, some people are born, maybe even bred to uh, um, be activists, be extremely passionate about one thing, maybe more than one thing. Um, and there are people who are, uh, and I think because of those people, movements get bigger and bigger and bigger. There's more awareness. There's more, you know, affiliation. Like there, it grows and it grows and grows, and it gets to a point where finally something can be done about that, you know. But at the end of the day, uh, also, we're all given an opportunity to make change in some form or fashion. I think if we're realistic and honest, it's it's not always easy to, it's not always, it, it's not always easy to say yes to that opportunity. I know I don't, I drive a car that's still, use, it's a Prius, but it still uses gas. I mean, I eat meat, like, I mean, so I have all these opportunities to make change. And I think when there are times when I'm faced with a more harsh, you know, opportunity to, I need to start making a change, right? And then there are times where it's like, I just can't do that, right? And, and that's us as humans, just kind of, you know, it goes back to, you know, us as just like primates, right? Um, we all have our strengths and we all have our weaknesses. And I think, you know, collectively, we will get to these points. And, you know, some people, it's easier for some people and it's harder for others, right? And I, I think, um, but just with most movements, as these things continue to build, it becomes easier for people to get on board and, you know, and so I think it's, it's, yeah, I think sometimes we say no to opportunities and sometimes we say yes, and then those are our decisions that we live with, right? Yeah.
Good stuff. Somebody else have anything? Yeah, add. I'm gonna second somebody else's thought. I hope this comes out in our in an articulate manner. Um, I feel like Christians suffer from. Well, most of the Christians I've known in the past have suffered from escapist mentality. As much as there are ecological themes in the Bible or wherever you want to choose to find them, uh, the afterlife exists somewhere else. So whatever happens here is somebody else's problem. Or that's what I feel how Christians approach ecological issues. Um, most systemic issues are just that. They're systems. Systems haven't always existed. We have created them. Can we recreate those systems? Can we create other systems? Can we buy into those systems and change them from within to build on to the point of if you vote for people that cannot do what you want them to do, you run for office yourself. If you want companies that cannot do what you want them to do, or there's no way to hold them accountable, can you create companies? Of course you can. That will do different things. Somebody did create BP and Shell and Mobile. Are there people who are creating other companies that are doing things differently? Yes. Um, there are options available, but I think when problems are too big for us to even fathom as forget tackling, just understand the scope of it. I think we have to turn inwards just as much as try to figure out what is the most sustainable, healthy, long-term worldview we can adopt that will get us to the world that we want. Starting with embracing the idea that Heaven is here and now. It's not somewhere else and sometime after death. It's here. Let's take care of it. Um, so. Excellent. Thank you for that. And you raised a really good point about escapist mentalities, and I didn't get into that today because a lot of us grew up in evangelical circles where the idea of creation care environmentalism, even today, is kind of like looked down upon as a far left kind of secular project. Whereas in the 19th century, um, I think the American general, American Christian experience was a lot more socially um, active and, and saw social care or uh, social justice as more of an actual Christian project. Whereas now in this kind of post, not even post, but religious right, movement that began in the 1980s, like creation care, environmental activism, that is seen as antithetical to what we should be doing as Christians, because there's this escapist theology there. It's kind of like, hey, this world is doomed. It's fallen. It's corrupt. It's demonic. And God's going to destroy it. And we're going to be raptured. And so why would I care about what happens to, you know, the Colorado River or, you know, uh, pick your particular environmental ecological concern? Why would I care? When it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyway, and I'm going to heaven, and God's going to remake the cosmos in 20 years, you know, when Jesus returns, right? Um, you can see where that mentality 
you know, all the irresponsible places that goes. But yeah, that's you're absolutely right. I don't know if that's where you were thinking when you said escapist, but that's the escapist mentality I was raised with and how it has ecological implications. Yeah, give me the thumbs up. Anybody else hear that growing up? Like essentially why would, it was never like totally said like that, like over, like why would we care about, you know, recycling if Jesus is coming back, but then you, you can kind of put two and two together. It just was never talked about, right? And of course, environmentalism was actually, I remember being taught that that's like a pagan thing. You know, the tree huggers, they're pagans. That's witchcraft, right? Being overly concerned about the environment, you know, that's pagan. Anyway, yeah. And, yeah. Did you want to hear? So people can hear you on the online. No, we also suffer from the thought that um, there is this religious Darwinism that happens that because Christianity came much later in human history, it is more evolved than others. That the one-time death and resurrection is the epitome of all death and res resurrection, whereas the cyclic nature of life is a little bit less uh, it's more primitive, it's it's more pagan, it's more, you know, we, we're better than that. Uh, so there were, you know, there's plenty of thought processes uh, and, and tropes in Christianity that are manufactured to seem like they are better, uh, including like the way we approach heaven and hell and the way we approach uh, life and death and I don't know if that makes any sense but you know we always refer to uh, the indigenous way of approaching divinity in, in nature but we move on so quickly from that even though that happened for the longest amount of time in human history but we move so quickly from that without paying so much attention to it or even trying to figure out what happened because not most of it is unwritten and we value so much our written history that yeah, we just kind of brush over things that are, that are probably more important than we need to sit with them longer. Um, yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense. Well, good stuff. Anybody else today? Dan? Yeah. <laughs> very, very uh, humble hand there. Yeah, I should have been more confident. Um, yeah, because I don't know. I'll say this. You might your reaction might be like, okay, come on, but maybe not. But um, just to kind of try to be a little hopeful. Uh, um, I was just thinking. I bought this book a few years ago. I was in a thrift store and I found this book. I think for like three bucks, and it was. I think it's just called Global Warming, and it was. It's from 1985. And I bought it just as kind of like as a joke, because I was like, this is kind of sad and kind of funny that this book came out. And, you know, like no one cared when this came out. Yeah, like it was not a the climate crisis was not really in the public discourse at that time. And I think because it was so far away and it still feels like just in the last few years, I think we're starting to actually see some of the consequences now. So I think that just the way our brains are evolved is like we're not really built to react to far away problems or things that we can't see. Like, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, like we're designed to recognize the threat of 
like a saber-toothed tiger chasing us or something. I don't, I don't know if that's accurate, but um, but yeah. But I think now just the fact that it is more in our political discourse, it's more out in the open. People are talking about it. It's probably far uh, too little too you could you could argue, but. Um, I think that the more uh, it's in our face, the more that we're going to be willing to continue to deal with it. And uh, you know, the world as we know it is is probably uh, not going to end, <laughs> but it'll be it'll continue in a different way. And I do think humans are really good at adapting and creating a new way of living that will uh, be as efficient, uh, more efficient, at least possibly. Um, so that's me trying to trying to be hopeful. <laughs> All right, good stuff, good conversation. I like um, Sundays where the conversation that ensues after my talk is longer than my talk. That's, no, that's good, that's good. It's really should be about us hearing from each other and engaging in dialogue, love that. Um, instead of just, you know, the guy standing up front telling you what to think, you know. Anyway, good stuff. Um, all right, so let us uh, conclude our time together with our benediction that we say together as a way of coming together as a spiritual community and affirming life and the world. Let's say this together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Amen.